I'm going to turn our attention to John's gospel. John likes talking about the light. And he reports in the conversation, and John, that's feedback on this microphone, if you don't mind, just nudge that. Be grateful. Are we okay with that? So John chapter 8, and verses 12 to 20, and it says this. So Jesus again continued to speak to them. I am the light of the world, he said, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself and your witness isn't true. And Jesus answered and said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my witness is true. Because I know where I came from and where I'm going to. You do not know where I came from and where I'm going to. I'm going to stop it just there. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We could go through the Gospels and find just how many times Jesus starts off some of his teaching with the idea of I am. I am the bread of life. Yeah. If any man drinks of the water that I will give. And perhaps it sails past you. But these actually, these teachings were great signs. You know, we talk glibly about signs and wonders sometimes. But what Jesus was often doing with his teaching was actually giving the people signs. What do I mean? Well, when he talked about he being the bread of life, he was actually pointing back to the time in the wilderness when God provided manna to come down to feed them bread of heaven. What's he saying when he says he's the bread of life? He's saying that he is the one that fed the children of Israel in the wilderness. And then as proof that he not only did do that, but can do that. He takes five loaves and two fish and breaks them apart and feeds the thousands. I am. When he talked about the water of life, he was reminding them of in the, in the wilderness again when there was no water and the rock was struck and the water comes from the rock. And Paul actually says that Christ was the rock. When we talk about Christ, our rock, he is the one that is the source of living water that flows out. You know the difference between living water and, and, and ordinary water? Ordinary water is a pool. It doesn't flow anywhere. But living water was a term that was used for a stream that was inexhaustible. 
that would flow out and be fresh every day, not stagnant. It was living water. Do you understand these signs that Jesus did? And the sign that he's going to refer to here when he says he is the light of the world is a remarkable thing. Remarkable. Now, there is a famous picture entitled Light of the World uh, by Holman Hunt. I'm, I'm going to stick the picture up. There we go. Light of the World by Holman Hunt. Um, remember this for me, if you don't mind, because I'm going to come back to it and I might forget. So you're entitled to shout out and heckle me if I do forget it. Is that all right? Why do I not like this picture? Okay? I'm going to come back. So if I forget, you can shout out, Dave, why don't you like that picture? And we'll come back to it and have another look. Now, it's a very famous picture, and there's some very good things about it. Can you put it back on if you don't mind, Sean? It's often been said that this picture is... Um, it sums up something here, which is the fact that there's no handle on the door. And a lot of people, you know, say Holman, Holman was saying that this is the door of our heart. Where's the handle? It's on the inside. In other words, Christ can't barge into your life. It requires you to open your heart's door to him. That's a, that's a nice idea. I like that. So there are some good things about it. Now, there are some things that are plain wrong. What's that around the back of Jesus' head? A halo. What on earth is a halo? Yeah, where's that come from? I never read about halos in the Bible, do you? No, absolutely not. It actually, would you like to know the secret of the halo? Yeah, it comes from the worship of Sol Invictus, the sun god by the Romans. Now, that is a, um, a famous... Well, I say famous, it's famous to me. It's up in Newcastle in the University Museum. It was found on the Roman wall. And I don't know if you can know, but can you see behind the head of the sun god, there are cut out rays. Can you see that? I've got a one faked up if you go to the next and you'll see what it would look like when, they, when the lights were lit. And that's the origin of the halo. It's got nothing to do with Christianity. So I just thought I'd mention it along as we go. But it is um, interesting. If you want to go up to the Hancock Museum, I think it's in there now. It used to be in the university library. Um, if you go there, you'll also find the origin of the Easter egg. Anyhow, we'll move across faster. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll get diverted. You know that can happen to me. Occasionally. What I want to do now is though go is to where Jesus was when he was teaching in the temple about the light because it's deeply significant where he was. He was actually in the court of the women. Now the first court that you came to on the um, temple was this very large uh, plaza if you like um, Sean, if you put that up, there we go. 
Can you see that sort of on the bottom left-hand side? You might see, oh, I can peep out behind the thing, can I? That's good. Hang on. Where am I? <laughs> I've got the point the other way, haven't I? Anyhow, but we won't try that. Um, but you can see the vastness of this temple grounds. And you can see there is a low wall on that bottom left-hand side. That was the demarcation for where Gentiles could not go. And there's a famous sign that said, it was death to any Gentile who walked across that wall. It was only about this high, the wall. It wasn't very high. And actually, they found that very sign in the last 10 years. They found it uh, dug up uh, in Jerusalem. And, and so they've actually got the original sign that, that warned the Gentiles not to cross that line. Now, the outer courtyard was the courtyard of the Gentiles. So visitors who could come um, could come actually into the temple ground and see the whole of the splendor of the outside of the temple proper. And they could walk across. But once they got to that wall, they couldn't go any further. If you read in the book of Acts, the riot that takes place, um, when it... The thought that Paul had brought a Greek who wasn't a Jew and crossed that wall. In fact, he was a Jew. But once he crossed that wall, there was an absolute riot and the Romans had to come down and rescue Paul. Read the end of the book of Acts here. It's fascinating. Now, once you pass that courtyard into the temple proper, if we can go back to that one again, you'll see inside the walls... There was another outer court, and that was called the Court of the Women. The women were allowed there, but they weren't allowed to go any further. And the treasury of the temple was there as well. So see these porches, these uh, pillars, and have porches. It's often said that Jesus taught in those places. And rabbis would go, and they would teach in this, the court of the women, because the women were allowed to be there as well as the men. And they would teach in those, like, offshots. If you've ever been in Durham Cathedral and seen the big pillars, and, and imagine, you know, that, something like that. And that's where Jesus taught. And it was interesting because it was also called the treasury. And in this treasury, there was um, 13 treasure chests. And these treasure chests had... Have you seen like his master's voice, the, the, um, the old gramophones? So like a trumpet... You sometimes see them in Asda, actually, you know, you can put your penny on the top and it goes round and round and round and round and then drops in the box. Yep. Yeah. You all know what I mean. Yeah. Well, each of these 13 chests had one of those trumpets and that's where you would put your money. But what it meant, of course, it was great for catching money. So however much you put in, but you could also see what people were putting in. Remember the widow and the widow's might? In the first two, you had to put in your half shekel, which every Jew had to pay towards the upkeep of the temple. And the third and fourth were dropped in money to purchase two pigeons, which a woman had to offer for the purification of the birth of a child. 
Remember Mary doing that? So she would go in and she would put the money in that third and fourth or fourth trumpet. It would go down into the box. In the fifth, you put contributions towards the cost of the wood that was needed to keep the altar light. In the sixth, you put money in there if you wanted to support the cost of the incense. In the seventh, it was contributions to the upkeep of the golden vessels. And sometimes a man set apart a certain sum or a family to make up for a trespass. And then the six remaining trumpets, people dropped in any money that they had left. It was all leaving. And you think we've got it bad when we take up two offerings. <laughs> the first for our tithes and offerings, and the second for the vision offering for the church for us to expand. By gum. They knew how to take the money off you in the temple, didn't they? But that's how they saw how much money the widow put in. We won't go into that story now. But it's standing here that Jesus makes that claim, I am the light of the world. And I want you to see what else was in the courtyard of the woman. Because there were four huge candelabras. You'll actually see it even on the previous slide. Um, see the, the great candelabras that were there inside? And it was said uh, in, in Jewish writings that these were so great, these lights, that it illuminated the whole of Jerusalem at night. So you could go out into the streets in Jerusalem and at the top of the temple, these lights would be up above the tops of the walls and shine right down into the streets and into the darkness. And probably, of course, has a great relevance to when Jesus talked about the city on the hill and let your light shine. Yeah. Now, we've already seen how Jesus often uses ceremonies that's taken place in the temple to make his point. A while ago I preached, quite a few years I suppose now, about the, um, the water. But at the height of one of the festivals they poured water out and all the people would be shouting and praising God and singing psalms and it comes to one moment of quietness. And in that moment of quietness they pour the water on the altar and that's the moment, the great day of the feast, when Jesus shouted out, and the only time he would have been heard was that moment of silence. When he shouted out, if any man thirst, come to me and drink. Where Jesus is now is at the festival of tabernacles, the evening of the first day. And there was a ceremony called the illumination of the temple. And that's when these four huge candelabras were lit. The young priests would shinny up the outside of these posts and pour the oil in manually. And it was a time of great celebration, a great celebration. Uh, the young priests would go up, as I say, and then the wisest and the holiest men in Israel, you know, the posh lot, yeah, they would actually dance 
before the light and sing psalms of joys. Jesus is saying, you've seen the blaze of the temple. Piercing the darkness. Piercing the night. Well, guess what? I am the light of the world. And if anyone follows me, there will be light. Not just for this one exciting night, but for a pathway all of your life. The light in the temple is brilliant, but in the end it flickers and dies. But I am the light that lasts forever. Now somebody heckle me, will you? I don't mean laugh at us. Do you not know a heckle? I said you were allowed to heckle me earlier on. Why don't I like the picture by Holman Hunt? The light he carries is too little. It's a tiny wee light. But the light of Christ is bigger than that in the temple. In fact, it's another sign. Remember what I said? What is he saying to the people? Remember in the wilderness, wherever God want, whenever God wanted the children of Israel to move, by day there'd be a pillar of cloud, but by night there would be a pillar of fire. And when God wanted the children of Israel to move, the light moved. And at that point in time, they had to pack up the mobile temple that they had. It was a flat pack temple. Capable of being shifted around. It, all the furniture, you know, the Ark of the Covenant had rings in the sides of it. And specific priests who would go and put the poles through the rings and lift it. Yeah. And carry it as they moved. And all of the furniture had these rings. So they could do just that. There must have been some strong chops in them days. Stuff made of gold. You know, not light. But it's been made. So it's portable. The key thing is this. When the light moves, you move. No wonder Jesus said, if any man follow me, then the light, yeah, I've forgotten the text. I'm winding my notes back very quickly. I am the light of the world, he said, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That's wonderful. What does it mean? It means we can't just bask in the light. We have to be followers of the light. I suppose it's a great tragedy if somebody found themselves where they saw the light 
stood in the light, but then refused to move. And when God moved the pillar of light and fire, eventually it would disappear over the horizon and all the people would be left with who didn't move would be darkness. What does this idea of follow mean? I'm going to give some simple definition of the word follow because the words language is important yeah and the greek word that's used for this akoluthian i say akoluthian very confidently as if that's how it is pronounced of course i haven't a clue could well be wrong i won't look at paul because he knows some greek and he might correct me so we're just going to pretend i'm right akoluthian it's used in this way first of all it was used of a soldier following his captain if a soldier went to the captain and said um, can you give us another 10 minutes I'm not packed up my feet are really hurting can we move tomorrow instead of today you might imagine the type of thing that would be said. It's possible the captain would be a wee bit rude uh, and, and suggest that it's not the job of the soldier to determine when to move. It's the job of the commander and captain, who is Christ. The word is also used in Greek literature and in the Bible of a slave accompanying the master and wherever the master goes the slave is in attendance always ready to spring to his service and carry out the tasks that he's given he is literally at the master's beck and call and the christian is the slave whose joy it is to serve christ we sometimes don't quite get what slavery was like in those days we saw caught up in what definitions of slavery are today. But literally, a person who was a slave in Roman times uh, had no rights whatsoever. None. They were an object owned by the master. Of course, in Jewish society... If you went the equivalent of bankrupt, you could sell yourself into slavery. But in the seventh year, you'd be set free. The year of Jubilee. But make no mistake about it, even that form of slavery, there was no question whatsoever of disobedience. A servant belonged to the master. Friends, I hope you're getting this. I'm not trying to give you a, an outline of Greek words. I'm trying to deal with principles here. You are soldiers in the army of Christ. You are slaves owned by your master. And if he says go, 
then we go. If he says stay, then we stay. What we have to practice as Christians is simply this. Listen to what God is saying to you. Now, first and foremost, he will speak through his word. And he will never speak to you in such a way that the word is overturned. Understand? Some Christians have a very strange idea of obedience. The Bible says, don't stop getting together in fellowship. In other words, belong to a body. Right? When he says don't stop, guess what he means? Don't stop. Don't give up as the practice of some. Guess what he means? Don't give up. Belong. Oh, the same John who's writing this. If you ever read his letters in one John 3, the three letters he writes near the back of the Bible just before Revelation. His constant theme is this, love one another. And Jesus' command to you is love one another. We can organize care and do a grand job doing it. And we have people who really do care for people. Passionately care for people. But Jesus wants you to care for the people around about you. Do us a favor. Look at the person in the row behind you. The back row, you, you can't. You, you can look sideways. There's always some jokers, isn't there? Have a, have a good look, seriously. These people are your responsibility. These people are your responsibility. Love one another. That does not mean get a fluffy feeling in your stomach about each other. Right? It means look at each other and don't go, ah, in the nice. It means be there for them. It means if they go hungry, it's your job to make sure that that doesn't happen. If they're in need, it's your job to make sure that that need is met. If they're grieving, it's your job to put your arm around them and to comfort them. It's your job. Your commander-in-chief and your master has given you that job. Don't you dare pretend it's not your job. I've got other talents. Really? Have your other talents, but love one another. The word follow was often used as a, um, accepting a wise counsellor's opinion. So when a man's in doubt, he goes off to the expert. Uh, and if he's wise, he accepts what that expert advice is. Following someone's advice. Yeah? Pastor, um, I've got a slight problem. This is not me, by the way. Disclaimer. 
You don't understand, but I don't love my wife anymore. But I've met somebody, and oh, my heart sings when I'm with her. What do you think I should do? Because the world tells me to follow my heart and be the best version of me that I can be. I was going to flick my hair and say, because I'm worth it. <laughs> Can't do that. And the pastor says, the scripture says, no. You'd be amazed how many times in a church those conversations take place. I don't know of any here, incidentally. I'm not, not saying that. Listen to the commands of Christ. If you need clarification, come to the leaders and seek advice. But if you seek advice and we're a follower, guess what? If you're getting godly advice that's Bible-based, follow the advice. Some people just want to consult because they want permission to do what they've already decided to do. It was often used as obedience to the laws. Bless you. It was often used as the... Bless you again. It was often used in the way that somebody would give obedience to the laws of a city or a state. Listen, the Christian is a citizen of heaven. We, we, we are told to obey the laws of the land, yes? Unless and until they contradict what the Bible says we should be and do. To be a follower of Christ means that we do just that. And if there's a clash between what everybody else thinks, sorry folks online, and what the Bible says, the demand is we follow Christ. Obey the laws of our true home and land. We are citizens of heaven. I'm nearly, nearly inclined to burst into song. Can you remember the old song? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures all laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I'll stop. Sometimes the word is used legitimately in following the line of argument of a teacher, meaning literally following the teaching of Christ. A person who's a follower of Christ takes the message into his mind 
understands it, receives the words into memory and remembers, hides them in his heart and obeys. So what we can say is this, to be a follower of Christ is to give oneself body, soul and spirit to the obedience of our master and commander Jesus, to understand and value and prize his advice, to act on his teaching, to live by the rules of the new kingdom. That's what it is to be a follower. And that's radically different to what most people think a Christian is. When Jesus, when Jesus made these claims, the, the Pharisees reacted with hostility. I was going to get into that, but we'll leave it. Read, read John 8 and, and have a look at it. And I suppose one of the reasons that the Pharisees reacted so much is because they understood what Jesus was actually saying. That... He was the Messiah doing the work that only God could do. The word light was associated in Jewish thought with God. The Lord is my light. Um, in Psalm 27, the Lord will be your everlasting light. In Isaiah 60, by his light I walk through the darkness. Um, in Micah, when I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. So the rabbis and the Pharisees reacted when Jesus said he is the light of the world. You mightn't have got that when you first read it. But it was like a red rag to a bull. He was claiming to be God. No wonder John, when he writes his gospel, starts the way he does. In the beginning was the word. Yeah. The light. Read John 1 again. So just as we wrap up. Just so you understand one really important thing. It's interesting, you never have to teach children what light is, do you? They get it. But the Pharisees, the only thing that can stop light is something hard and thick and solid. Yep. And that was their hearts. Let me say this. When we come into the presence of God, something happens to our heart. And I'm going to suggest one of two things takes place. Imagine Christ's presence is like a burning heat. And your heart can either be made of wax or clay. And what happens to wax in the presence of heat? It melts. But something happens to clay in the presence of heat. And it bakes itself hard. You've got to determine, friends, this morning. You've heard about following Christ. You've heard that he's the light of the world. You understand the sign that he was representing to the people. And we understand that his claim to be the light of the world was... was, was went on to say, and my followers will have that light. The key thing was a double claim. Not only he is the light, but secondly, the followers need to understand. So what's the message this morning? He is the light. But you need to become the followers of Christ. Not the attenders of church. You need to be the followers of Christ. 
You know, we said earlier, and it's true, God is here. Jesus is here this morning. And, and, and he will be affecting your heart in one of two ways. If your heart's melting, you might have an urge to cry. Why? Because we recognize just how much he's done for us. And how much he loves us. And how much we need to surrender to him. But there may be others. Maybe people have been here a long time, I don't know. But their response goes something like this, I've heard it all before. I know it. I know it. And the presence of God just makes them hard. Because although they know it, they've got hearts of stone. Why? Because they don't want to be a follower. They just want to be a believer. They just want to be somebody who... You know, can pay lip service to it all. But aren't prepared, prepared, aren't prepared to surrender, to pass authority for their own lives over to Christ, to love one another as he has loved. We do not want a church full of people who want to be the boss. We want a church full of people who want to be servants. He said, if I have served you, then you should serve each other. You know the great act of service? That just before he was betrayed, hours before he died, hours before the great cohort of soldiers came to arrest him, we see Jesus on his knees, not on the grass in Gethsemane, but we see him on his knees washing the disciples' feet. Washing Peter's feet. And he knows Peter's going to deny him. Friends, he washed the feet of Judas. Who was going to betray him. What an act of service. If I, your Lord and Master, can do this, then what can you do for each other? And then he took the bread. And he broke the bread. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup and said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. In a moment, we're going to take the bread and the wine. Barbara's going to come and the singers are going to come and going to lead us while we worshiply together. While we say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Paul said, if you take this bread and the wine in the wrong way, 
It does you no good whatsoever. In fact, it's to your detriment. Friends, as you take the bread, I want you just to ask yourself the simple question. Are you a follower? Is your heart soft before God? Or are you just somebody who believes but is determined to live your own life? And your heart hard before God? And if that's the case, I suggest that you don't eat and don't drink of the bread and the wine. It's our honour and privilege to be able to do this together. Hebrews 3, 15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden 